I could hardly breathe when he told me this. He loved to daydream, to look at flowers, to notice the way the light sparkled on the water. Something was sailing towards them, but it was as big as a mountain. We It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. What a pleasure it is for me to be with you and to bring these stories into your home and into your heart. It's going to be a great hour today. You know, I've got a friend who posts photos of himself to Facebook, and in each photo he has something in his mouth, and underneath the photo is a caption. Let me explain. He'll post a photo of himself, for example, with a banana in his mouth, and the caption will read, Bananas are better than apples. Change my mind. Or he'll post a photo of himself with a celery stick in his mouth, and the caption will say, Celery sticks are better than carrot sticks. Change my mind. Well, you've seen that sort of thing. You've seen photos of guys in parks sitting at booths with signs on the booths that say things like, The Star Wars prequels are the best Star Wars movies. Change my mind. Now, you may not agree with any of those assertions, but the point is that we face strong opinions in the world, don't we? And sometimes the holders of those opinions dare us to change their minds, even when that dare is really just an assertion that they're pretty set in their ways and aren't likely to change their minds. Well, in today's collection of stories, we'll hear about folks who change their minds or who try to change the minds of other storytellers. Kevin Carr, Joan Stockbridge, and Sid Lieberman will bring us these stories. And we're going to begin with a story from Kevin car. It's a story called the poor gaitero. Now, a gaitero is someone who plays the pipes, you know, like the bagpipes. And in this story, there is a father with three sons, and he has high expectations of those boys, for all but his youngest son, anyway. He favors his two elder children, and the father is convinced that the youngest has no hope in life. But much to his surprise, the kind young sibling with a magical knack for music makes his father change his mind. Here's the poor Gaitero, Kevin Carr on the Appleseed. There was a very poor farmer who had three sons. The older sons were very hard-working, no-nonsense young men who were very serious. But the youngest was a bit different. He loved to daydream, to look at flowers, to notice the way the light sparkled on the water, and to listen to the music of the wind in the trees. "'This guy is really stupid,' said the older sons to the farmer." The only thing he is good for is watching the animals while they are in the fields. Sadly, the farmer, watching his youngest son playing with a baby pig, agreed. And so the young man, whose name was Alexandre, was sent to be a shepherd and watch the sheep of a very rich farmer in the neighborhood. This rich farmer was a pompous man who had so many sheep that he employed many shepherds. Alexandre was given a small flock to take into the hills so that the sheep could eat the rich grass that grew there. One day, 
to his surprise, he met an old woman with very bright and mysterious eyes. Young man, do you have anything extra to eat? she asked. Alexandre did not have much, but he didn't hesitate to offer her a large share of what he had. And as they sat eating, she asked him if he was happy being a shepherd. Well, it was not my first choice, he said. But my father has no faith in me, and my brothers don't like me much, so here I am with the sheep. Now don't pay too much attention to what your father and brothers say. You'll see that things can always change, she said comfortingly. Oh, it's not so bad here being a shepherd. The farmer treats me pretty well, and I love the green of the grass and the wind in the hills. I really only wish for one thing. Oh, yes? What's that? asked the woman. I have always wanted to have a bagpipe to play. And then and there the old woman, who did have a hint of mystery around her smiling eyes, pulled from her very tiny purse a very large and beautiful gaita, which was the kind of bagpipe they play in that part of the world, and she gave it to Alexandre. His eyes grew large as he took the instrument in his hands. The old woman gave him a pat on those hands, and then she turned to be on her way. Suddenly he remembered. He didn't know how to play the bagpipe. He called out. He didn't know what to do. And she laughed. And she called back over her shoulder that he should just play from his heart. And then she was gone. Alexandre lost no time in filling up the bag of the gaita with wind. And he gave it a squeeze and it started to play. He became lost in the music. The bagpipe played all by itself. He closed his eyes and listened to the magnificent sounds. And when he opened his eyes, he noticed that all his sheep were dancing. They were dancing to the music. So every night, the boy would play and the sheep would dance. And soon, even the other shepherds noticed that Alexandre's sheep grew fatter and had more wool than any other sheep. They wondered how this could be. Surely he had found some special secret pasture with wonderful grass. So they followed him, and they tried to spy on him to see where this pasture was. But all they saw was the miracle of the dancing sheep. They became jealous and a bit frightened, and they went and told the owner, who looked at them and said, Sheep don't dance. Who ever heard of such a thing? They said, Come and look, Patron. And he marched straight away to where the boy was, watching his flock. Where are my sheep? he demanded. Right here, Signor, the boy said. Is it true that these sheep dance? Yes, said Alexandre. They dance every time I play the gaita. Show me, shouted the Patron. And so the boy played his gaita, and the sheep began to dance. Not only did the sheep dance, but the farmer began to dance. And what is more, the farmer found that as long as the bagpipe played, he could not stop dancing. Finally, Alexandro stopped playing, and the farmer caught his breath and ran away before the boy could start playing again. Now when he got home, 
The patron told his wife what he had seen, and she said, "'Sheep don't dance.' "'Go and see for yourself,' he said. And that she did. The boy played, and not only did the sheep dance, but the farmer's wife was compelled by the charms of the music to dance herself, and this time Alexandre played for a long, long time.' When he finally stopped, the farmer's wife was exhausted and furious. She went home as soon as she could get her breath. And she told the farmer that surely the boy was a demon and they should get rid of him as soon as they could. And so they sent him on his way. Now while Alexandre returned home, no one believed his story. His father grumbled, It was not enough that my son is stupid and good for nothing. Now he has visions. Not long after this, the father sent the oldest son to the open-air market in the nearest town to sell a large basket of honey from their farm. Along the way, the young man met an old woman who had mysterious smiling eyes, and she asked him what was in the basket. Now he thought that if he told her the truth, she would want some of the honey, so he answered that there were mice in the basket. She looked at him seriously and said, "'Well, then, I hope they are very lively mice.' Now, to the oldest son's amazement, when he got to the market and opened his basket, it was full of mice, who immediately swarmed out of the basket and ran in all directions. And, of course, this attracted the attention of all the local cats, who began to chase the mice and naturally, this was of great interest to the dogs of the town, who began to chase the cats. And in this way, the whole market was turned into a tempest of animals and shouting people. And when they all discovered who it was who had brought the mice, the oldest son barely escaped alive, and of course had to return home in shame, and with no money, to the great disappointment of his father." The next day it was the second son's turn to go to market, this time with a crate of oranges. He met the same woman on the road, and she asked him what was in the crate. He thought she might want an orange, so he told her the crate was full of mosquitoes, and she said, "'Well, I hope they're very angry mosquitoes.' And when the second son arrived at the market and opened his crate— out flew a cloud of vicious, hungry mosquitoes who began to bite and torment everyone there. It wasn't long until the market was in a shambles, but not before quite a few blows had been given the second son. He, too, returned home with bruises and empty pockets. "'Whatever will I do now?' exclaimed the farmer. "'My sons are failures, and I will starve.' Then up came Alexandre. Father, you must let me try to go to the market tomorrow. I will not fail. And though the other two sons laughed, the father knew he had no choice. The next day, Alexandre set out with a large basket of grapes, and he was delighted to meet the same woman on the road. She looked somewhat familiar to him, something about her eyes, he thought. What is in the basket, she asked. 
delicious grapes, he answered. Would you like to taste one? No, thank you, she said. But I will tell you, you will make much money at the market with those grapes. And then the old woman smiled and bade him a good day. Now when Alexandre got to town and opened his basket, the smell of ripe grapes was irresistible, and people crowded to buy them. And no matter how many he sold, the basket remained full of grapes. When it was time to go home, at the end of the day, the boy left the basket with some poor people and took home a huge sack of money. When he got home, his family couldn't believe it. His father was overjoyed and declared that at last they could build the large house they had always wanted, and that is what they did. But fortune comes and fortune goes, and when the house was finished, the money was all gone. The farmer called his sons together and told them that they would have to go out into the world to make their own fortunes. Naturally, the two older brothers took one road, and Alexandre took another. Now the boy decided he would sell olive oil, because he loved the way it smelled and the way it tasted, but most of all he loved its rich golden color. One day he came upon the most beautiful house he had ever seen. When he knocked on the door to offer his wares, a very familiar-looking woman answered the door. She asked him what his beautiful olive oil was worth. He answered that to him olive oil was precious and yellow like gold or like sunlight itself, and he would prefer to keep it because it was so beautiful, but that she should offer what she thought it was worth. Well enough, she said, smiling with those mysterious eyes. And she said to him, since you are kind enough to offer me something so beautiful, I will pay you well. I will trade you all the oil you have for all the money in this house. The deal was made, and the boy went off with a very large sack of gold. Now the boy decided to go home to his father's house and share his good fortune. And when he got there, he began to count his money. But it was taking so long that he finally pulled out his gaita and began to play. And the money began to dance and to arrange itself into neat piles. And when his father saw the piles of money dancing, he realized that not only had his son been telling the truth all along, but that they now had enough money to live in comfort the rest of their days. And that is what they did. And the older brothers, they are probably still searching for their fortunes in all the wrong places. The Poor Gaitero, a story from Kevin Carr for The Bagpiper in All of Us. You've got a bagpiper in you, don't you? I know I do. And, of course, that was a story about a father who is changed by a son with a magical knack for music. In fact, that changes everything. We're going to bring you, in just a moment, a story called Manhairo, a story from Japan shared with you by Joan Stockbridge, a story from history you won't want to miss. I'm Sam Payne. 
You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard a story from Kevin Carr called The Poor Gaitero about a father with three sons, the youngest of whom has a magical knack for music that changes everything. Up next, a story from history, the history of Japan. It's a story called Manhairo. It's told for you by Joan Stockbridge, and we're happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. Sometimes one person changes history. Menhiro, a Japanese peasant snatched up from ordinary life and propelled by the winds of destiny, was just such a person. In January 1841, Menhiro and four others were fishing off the coast of Japan. Suddenly, an eerie stillness fell. Sky turned the color of eggplant. A hurricane burst upon them. The boat was seized like a leaf and driven by the winds far out into the ocean. Mountainous waves rocked that boat. The mast snapped, the rudder torn off, oars pulled away. Completely helpless, the men lay on open planking, lashed by rain and chanting. Namu Amida Butsu, Namu Amida Butsu. When the hurricane passed, they had survived, but they were still being driven out to sea. They'd been caught up by the black current. Finally, 300 miles later, they were driven up on the rocks of a small island, Torishima, Bird Island. The boat was smashed to pieces. The men flailed their way through the surf and crawled to shore. Menhiro, only 14, the youngest of the crew, but already the sole support of his widowed mother, sisters, and disabled brother, staggered to his feet. Hours later, he returned and led the crew to a cave. They were to shelter in this cave for seven months. Menhiro became the main forager, snaring albatross and gathering sea urchins. Although plagued by hunger and thirst, Menhiro suffered most from nightmares, where he saw his mother starving and his sisters begging. While awake, he worried about his fate should he ever manage to return to the village of Nakahama. For this was the period of Japanese history known internally as the Great Peace. For 250 years, Japan had existed as a feudal nation in complete isolation from the rest of the world. All contact with foreigners was forbidden, and leaving the country for any reason punishable by death. Seven months after being shipwrecked, Menhiro looked up one morning and couldn't believe his eyes. Was it a ship? Something was sailing towards them, but it was as big as a mountain. But then it dropped anchor. This was their chance. Menhiro flung himself into the ocean and began swimming. 
Soon he was hauled up out of the water and dropped like a wet bundle on the deck. A man with fierce eyes strode towards him. Minhiro pressed his forehead down against the planking, kowtowing. This must be their noble. Who are you? Minhiro lifted himself up and pointed frantically for the island. There must be more poor devils on that rock. The castaways had been rescued by the John Howland, a whaling ship out of New Bedford, Massachusetts. Like all whalers, she was crewed by men of many races, languages, and temperaments, but she was captained by William Whitfield, a stern Yankee. For the first few days, Menhiro and all the other Japanese fishermen huddled together on the foredeck. They feared they'd been imprisoned by the monsters they'd always heard lived outside of Japan. But then one afternoon, thar she blows, came ringing down out of the cross trees, and the ship erupted in activity. Menhiro couldn't help himself. He broke free of the circle of fishermen and watched in astonishment as whaleboats were lowered over the side and rowed frantically for a spouting whale. Menhiro raced down onto the main deck and watched in astonishment as a huge man, the color of charcoal, drove an iron rod into the side of the whale. What skill! What strength! At that moment, Menhiro vowed he would learn how to do this if he ever returned to Nakahama and could teach the villagers how to hunt whales, they would never be hungry again. From that day onward, Manhiro roamed the John Howland. He picked up English astonishingly quickly and became a favorite of the crew, who nicknamed him John Mung. Slowly, Captain Whitfield, a widower with no children, took an interest in this curious young man. He showed him maps, taught him how to steer by the stars, and gave him paper. Manhiro used the paper to make intricate, detailed sketches of everything aboard the ship, from the rigging to the structure of the tri-ovens, learning all he could. Four months later, the John Howland sailed into Honolulu Harbor, and Captain Whitfield took the castaways to see his old friend, Dr. Judd, to discuss their fate. It was agreed that it was far too dangerous for the men to return to Japan. Judd agreed to find them jobs and housing. Turning to leave, Whitfield took a farewell glance at Manhiro, at his slender face and pleading eyes. Stay with you! Whitfield looked at Japanese Captain Denzo, who nodded. And so it was that Manhiro left the Japanese crew and joined Whitfield's crew, entitled to one 140th share of the profits. A year and a half later, in May 1843, when the John Howland sailed into Fairhaven, Massachusetts, Manhiro became the first Japanese person to come to the United States. Whitfield took him first to Bethel Seaman's Church, where they gave thanks. Then he brought him home, where he gave him a room of his own with a four-poster bed. 
he enrolled Manhiro in the village school, where the 16-year-old quickly made friends, teaching everyone how to make and fly kites. Even after Whitfield remarried and had children of his own, he treated Manhiro like a son. Enrolling him in Bartlett's Academy of Navigation, along with the other sons of wealthy captains and ship owners. However, despite loving the Whitfields and American life, Manhiro never forgot his mother and sisters. The nightmares returned, and as soon as he graduated from the School of Navigation, he turned all his efforts towards returning to Nakahama. He went whaling again aboard the Franklin, but they had a disastrous voyage where the captain went mad and had to be clapped in irons. After two and a half years, he only earned $350. But as soon as he stepped foot off the Franklin, he started hearing stories of a place where rivers ran with gold. This faraway land was called California. Manhira only spent a few days with the Whitfields and was soon aboard a lumber schooner on his way to San Francisco. Once he reached the coast of California, he made his way to the gold fields and within a month had uncovered a nugget the size of a goose egg. Manhira sold the gold nugget for $650. He bought a steamship ticket to Honolulu. The world was changing. The era of steam was coming in. Manhiro was changing right along with it. This would be the first time he'd ever be aboard a boat as a passenger, not a working member of the crew. In Honolulu, Manhiro met up with his old crewmates, two of whom were willing to risk returning to Japan. Manhiro bought a small whaleboat, named it the Adventurer. He found a steamship captain sailing for Shanghai. The captain was willing to take them aboard and let them off close to the coast of Japan. Finally, Manhiro bought gifts for his family. Sewing needles, scissors, buttons, a mirror, coffee, sugar. He also bought the tools of his new trade, a Bowditch's Guide to Navigation, compass, charts, Finally, ten years after he'd been snatched up by the hurricane, in January 1851, Manhiro and his friends began rowing for home. Can you imagine their exhilaration as the boat scraped shore and they made their way onto their home soil? But the exhilaration was quickly replaced by terror because they were almost immediately apprehended by local officials and locked into a small house. They spent the night in fear. Would they be executed in the morning? Fortunately, Manhiro had come ashore in Okinawa, which was ruled by Lord Nakiara, who secretly opposed the isolation policy. Instead of executing Manhiro, he got as much information as he could from him. Manhiro was questioned over and over again. Manhiro also made a model whaling boat for Lord Nakiara, translated 
Bowditch's Guide to Navigation, and taught them the rudiments of Western mathematics. For two and a half years, Manhiro and the others were questioned. And then finally, unceremoniously, one morning, they were just turned loose and told they could return to their villages so long as they gave up fishing and never got in a boat again. For four days, Minhira walked back to Nakahama. Every time a samurai passed on the roadway, Minhira got down on his knees and pressed his forehead to the ground, kowtowing. When he arrived home in the village, he did his duty and went first to the home of the village headman. Coming outside, he saw that a crowd had gathered. An old woman pushed her way through and looked at his oval face and feathery eyebrows. What is your name? Okusan, mother, he said. And mother and son walked slowly home together. That night, the village held a great feast. In the morning, Manhiro and his family went to the temple, and he saw the headstone that his mother had erected, believing he had died. Sadly, he had no gifts or tools. After 13 years and all he had been through, he had returned home empty-handed, He was once again a shoeless peasant, unable even to go fishing. However, the story does not end here. In February 1854, a few months after Manhiro returned to his village, four immense steamships spewing black smoke dropped anchor outside Edo Harbor. Commodore Perry had arrived. The U.S. wanted a coaling station in Japan. They wanted better treatment of U.S. castaways washed ashore, and they wanted to establish trade relations. The shogun could see those immense ships from his bedroom window, and he was angry. 250 years of splendid isolation was over. He wanted to fight. But his advisors were uncertain. Those ships were enormous. This was the moment Lord Nakiara had been waiting for. There is one person who understands the barbarians, he said. He is just a peasant, but he has lived among them and understands their customs. Bring him here. Manhiro was swept up in an imperial litter and carried to Edo. He was given the rank of samurai so as to have sufficient status to speak at court. He was given two elaborate outfits. The Americans are a good and honorable people, he said. All they want is to trade. It is better to open our ports than to go to war. In the end, Manhiro's opinion prevailed. Commodore Perry was received, war was averted, relations were established. For the rest of his life, 
Manhiro strove to develop close ties between Japan and the United States. He taught mathematics, navigation, and English. He acted as a translator. Once he went on a diplomatic mission back to the United States and was able to see the Whitfields again. He married a samurai's daughter, Tetsu, and raised a family. In Japan, Manhiro was alternately honored and feared. Revered as a visionary, reviled as a traitor. He survived two assassination attempts. For the rest of his days, he remained an optimist and humanitarian and was often criticized for being too generous to beggars. He strode through the streets of Tokyo every day wearing a Japanese kimono and American derby hat and was often heard to say, under the skin, we are all the same. A story told for you by Joan Stockbridge, the story of Manhiro. Coming up in just a moment, you're going to hear a story from Sid Lieberman. Now, Sid Lieberman was commissioned by the Van Andel Museum Center to compose five stories about the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the ancient scrolls found in the 40s and 50s in the caves at Qumran in Israel. Sid tackled that assignment with five stories that bring to life the story of ancient scrolls in these days. You're going to hear one of those stories right after a break. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, the story of Manhairo, a Japanese story told for you by Joan Stockbridge. And up next, a story from Sid Lieberman. Now, Sid was commissioned by the Van Andel Museum Center to tell the story of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in a way that would make the story of those ancient scrolls come to life. Now, those ancient scrolls discovered in the 40s and 50s in caves at Qumran in Israel contained all sorts of things. And among them were some of the oldest manuscripts of some of the things that later would appear in the Bible. Now, how do you approach a work like that, the telling of stories that will make those ancient scrolls come to life for an audience in our day? Well, one of the things that Sid Lieberman did is that he wrote one of the stories of the five that he created uh, from the point of view of a son writing a letter to his father in ancient times. The son is trying to explain to his father in this letter why he feels he needs to become an Essene, a member of the ancient group that's widely thought to have authored the Dead Sea Scrolls. We share it with you today in an episode filled with stories about changing people's minds, because in this story, the son communicates with a father who is of a very different mind than he is. Maybe you've had differences with your own father or with your own son. Here's a story called Dear Father from Sid Lieberman on The Appleseed.
Dear Father, I'm sorry for leaving without a word and not writing for several days. I know I worried you and Mother, Aaron, and little Rachel. But if I told you where I was going, you would have forbidden me to go. I didn't want to have to disobey you. I'm at Qumran, the Essene settlement in the Judean wilderness. I know you'll be upset to hear this, but I plan to become an Essene. That's why I'm writing. I want to explain. Father, you know how troubled I've been over what has become of our religion and our country. The temple's corrupt, and no one cares that the priesthood has been bought and the true priests thrown out. Our leaders favor all things Greek, and the fact that they've invited the pagan Romans into our land to protect them is beyond belief. Father, my blood boils when I think of it. I didn't know what to do. Then I found the answer by chance. One day, when I was very troubled, I found myself in the Essene section of Jerusalem near the Essene Gate. An older man smiled at me. No doubt he could see I needed someone to talk to. He was seated by a fruit stall, and he held out some dates. Sit, he beckoned. Eat. I visited Samuel many times. Of course I talked about my beliefs and my bitterness. He, too, spoke of his anger over the corruption in the temple. Eventually Samuel told me that he was an Essene, and he explained how being an Essene gave him a way to live in this world. Then he told me about a group of Essenes who were different than the rest. They call themselves Yachad, the community. They live a holy life in the wilderness in order to create a new Judaism, a pure religion that will pave the way for a new Jerusalem. These are the Essenes at Qumran. I could hardly breathe when he told me this. I knew immediately that I had to join the sect. And so I have arrived at Qumran. God has brought me here. God has guided me through the wilderness and led me to the Essenes. I arrived at night and was led to a tent at the outskirts of the settlement. I was told that the guardian would interview me the next day. In the morning, I had time to look around before the meeting. Qumran is perched high up on a cliff overlooking the Dead Sea. You can see for miles, although there isn't really much to see. The settlement consists of a huge tower and several buildings. We're in the middle of a desert, but cisterns are everywhere. I thought that strange until I found out why. But more of that later. The men sleep in tents and caves. There is also a nearby cemetery. After morning prayers, the men streamed out in all directions. I soon learned that they were heading to the date palm trees at Enfeshka, the fields where they raise barley or the hills to tend sheep. There may be as many as two hundred men living here. No women. The sex survives by taking in children, young boys like me, and older men who have tired of the world. Everywhere I turned, I saw busy craftsmen, weavers, potters, leather tanners, but the most amazing of all were the scribes. In one room, I found several scribes carefully copying text. I asked a bald-headed scribe what he was copying. It's Isaiah, he replied, and then proudly displayed the work so I could see. I told him it was beautiful and commented on the number of scrolls in the room, for scrolls rested on tables all over the workshop. At that, all the scribes laughed. So did the old man. At first I was embarrassed. I wondered whether they were making fun of me. But then the old scribe smiled at me kindly, the way you do, Father, and said, Come with me.
He led me to a room off the workshop. It was like a, a holy dream. Scrolls filled the entire room. It looked like a sea of scrolls. We have hundreds, he said, as he gently ran his hand over one on the table in front of him. Hundreds and hundreds. I myself do not even know how many we have. Study is very important to us. If you enter the company of the community, you must swear an oath to carefully preserve the books of the sect. He shook his head and waved his hand over the scrolls. It's a good life, he said. I felt a little frightened when I finally met the guardian. His hair and beard are entirely white, and I think it was this in his grave expression that made him seem a little ominous. But I carried a letter from Samuel, and when I showed it to him, I could see his eyes begin to soften. We talked of my background, and he seemed impressed with how much I knew about the Essenes. He told me I could stay at the settlement on probation for two years. After one year, I must take a test on my understanding and observance of the laws. If I pass, I can continue working and studying here. At the end of two years, if the priests and the multitude of men judge that I am fit to be part of the covenant, I will be able to join the company of the community. Father, here is a remarkable thing. Once you become an Essene, you give all your worldly goods to the group. One man takes care of all of the settlement's finances. The Essenes share everything equally. There are no rich here, no poor, no one buys or sells anything within the community. They eat, pray, study, and live in common. Let me tell you of the strangest moment of my first day. At the fifth hour, I left our sheep and returned to Qumran. Men were hurrying back from all directions. One of my new tentmates, Benjamin, who has become my friend, pulled me aside and told me to watch. As the men returned from work, they removed their dusty work clothes and changed into white linen loincloths. Then they formed a line and walked down stone steps into one of the cisterns where they completely immersed themselves. When they finished, they walked up the same steps but on the other side, the side of the pure. Then they dried themselves and changed into clean white tunics. My new friend Benjamin told me that ten of the sixteen cisterns in the settlement are used for immersion, which the Essenes consider an act of purification. It's so central to their beliefs that they do it every day. Benjamin says that a man must truly repent before he is allowed to enter the water. After the men changed, they went to eat the communal meal. That's the most important ritual in Qumran. No one speaks when he enters, Benjamin told me. The men file in and sit in order of seniority. Priests first, then elders, then each according to his rank. I found out that the guardian determines rank by judging each man's spirituality. He watches how the men follow the laws and how they treat their fellow men and how well they study. Every year men are moved up or down according to their actions. After the men are seated, the head priest says a prayer and the meal is served, bread, one course, and wine. The brothers eat in silence. They say another prayer after the meal, then they change and return to work. As you can see, how a person acts is very important in Qumran. The Essenes have so many rules. I learned two on the first day by breaking them. Why do I think that doesn't surprise you? I might not have been punished since I was so new, but Benjamin was the only one to see. My first mistake happened as we stood watching the men immerse themselves. A wind suddenly blew up and dust got into my mouth and nose. I sneezed and then spit. You should have seen Benjamin's face. His eyes darted all around to see if anyone was watching. 
You're lucky, he said, when he saw that we hadn't been observed. One of our rules here is that you can't spit in company or to the right. If you do, you must do penance for thirty days. My second mistake happened after we returned to our tent at the end of the day. It was still very hot, so we sat on the ground outside the tent and talked. Everyone was doing the same. I wanted to tell Benjamin how angry I was with Joseph, the head shepherd. It seemed that because I was new, he was making me do his work. I said, I'm so mad at Joseph, but Benjamin cut me off with a quick wave of his hand. Then he leaned close. Be careful about complaining. If you complain about someone without reason, you'll be punished. And don't ever murmur against the community or its beliefs. You'll be expelled forever. The Essenes have rules for everything, Father. We are not to speak in anger or with envy. We must not insult a companion, and we must care for those in need. I must swear to practice piety toward God, hate the unjust, and fight the battle of the just. Like the spitting, they have rules to guide us in little things. For instance, we can't interrupt someone when he's speaking. That's a rule our neighbor Nathan should live by, not to mention my little sister. Following these rules teaches us how to live a holy life. And that's what this community is about. Holiness. True holiness. The Essenes are following the prophet Isaiah, who said, Prepare in the wilderness the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a path for our God. We are preparing for the coming of the Messiah. What could be more important? The teacher of righteousness, the holy man who started this movement, prophesied that the epoch of wickedness is upon us and that soon a great and devastating war will occur between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. This war will last forty years, but we will prevail because God is on our side. The men talked of the coming war last night. Oh, Father, how glorious it will be. Our banners will read the people of God, the justice of God, the glory of God. Our weapons will speak of God's strength, His wrath, and His judgment. Picture a battle line of a thousand men wearing tunics embroidered with blue, purple, and scarlet thread. They hold bronze shields burnished like mirrors. All are pure and holy, for no impure man may go down to battle. They stand ready, waiting for a trumpet to sound, and then they will rush into battle and with the help of angels, be victorious. I have one last thing to tell you. The hardest thing. The Essenes here don't marry. If I'm able to become an Essene, I will not produce a grandchild for you. I'm sure that Aaron will give you an heir and that Rachel will produce a flock of curly-haired children. But it saddens me that I will never be a father and do for my child what you have done for me. I'm so torn. I miss our family terribly. I miss Mother and her cooking, especially her fresh bread, Rachel's complaints and her curls, wrestling with Aaron. And Father, I miss you so. Our walks, our talks, the times you would teach me the way you would put a hand on my shoulder and search my face to see if I really understood what you had told me. I'm searching your face now to see if you understand. 
I am not rejecting you. God has brought me here. I am beginning to feel as if this is my home. I am beginning to feel as if this is my life. I am beginning to feel like an Essene. All my love, David. Sid Lieberman with a story called Dear Father, a story about a father and a son trying to understand one another. That story is one of five stories that Sid Lieberman was commissioned to write for the Van Andel Museum Center. Stories that bring to life the Dead Sea Scrolls and their discovery in the 40s and 50s in the caves at Qumran in Israel. The entire collection of all five of Sid's Dead Sea Scrolls stories is called The Dead Sea Scrolls, Pieces of an Ancient Puzzle. You know, the stories today have memories coming pretty thick to my mind. Why don't we wrap up today with an entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. I remember the phone call. Hey guys, this is Kathy. I wonder if you'd be willing to take a friend of mine out to see Zion National Park over the next couple of days. She's from Israel, and she's ready to hop on a bus for southern Utah this afternoon. Well, Kathy was my sister-in-law, and so we agreed. Our jaws were set, our teeth were clenched, but we agreed. It wouldn't have been much of a problem any other week, but this week we had concerts to do, soccer games one after another, church stuff up to our eyeballs, school projects to finish. In retrospect, it's tough to bring to the memory of that week the panic that we already felt at how on earth we were going to make it through, and then to add the obligation of hosting a friend, not even our friend, but the friend of a family member, chauffeuring her through two days of national parking. Well, forgive us, but we were cursing Kathy's name under our breaths, and the curses grew ever more profane as we learned that this was not even a dear old friend of Kathy's, but a girl that she had met on the street outside a Salt Lake City art gallery only moments before she called us, a perfect stranger. And so it was that with painted-on pleasantness, we went downtown to fetch the girl from an evening greyhound. And she got off the bus, Reut Shmueli. She'd been in the United States touring with a backpack on her back and still fuming under a carefully managed sheen of social propriety. We loaded her things into the car and began the drive home. And that's when it began to happen, I think. The feigned pleasantness lasted about 40 seconds and then gave quickly away to genuine affection and then within the half hour to deep and abiding friendship. She stayed with us in the end for six days instead of two. She came to concerts. She hiked canyons with us. She asked us to tell us about our faith tradition, the way we worshipped. That part of our conversation came as we were hiking through Zion National Park. Rayut, as you can imagine, wanted to know how the park got its name. 
There were late-night talks, family excursions, and when she did leave us, it was with tears and embraces and promises to see each other again. On our coffee table sits a book about Israel sent to us by Reut's parents. Reut's trip took her to other places after she left our house. She went to the Grand Canyon. She stayed for a few nights in Las Vegas. And when she got lost and became frightened in that maze of lights and casinos and restaurants, she took out her phone and she called us, her friends. We talked her through it, and by the end of the night, she was safely back at her hostel, and we were even more inextricably linked together. A year later, Reut's dad took a research job in Washington, D.C., and we went to visit. We met her parents, Moshe and Fiona, and her sister, Ronit. They took us to a dance class at their local synagogue, and sometime later, they visited us in the West. We visited Bryce Canyon National Park together. We hiked and talked about the Torah. They were interested in how we believed and worshipped. We swapped our ideas about favorite characters from the scriptures. And we did it all in the spectacular landscape of one of the most remarkable national parks in the country. They taught us to celebrate Rosh Hashanah and we ate pomegranates together, picked from our backyard. We didn't see each other for a long time after that, but our affection for each other was deep and abiding. Then, just a year ago, I had the chance to visit Israel, and when I touched down in Tel Aviv, I called the only people I knew in the whole country, Reut's family. They came on a bus from where they lived and brought gifts of honey and CDs of pop music from Israel, and we embraced and talked and laughed together like we'd never been apart. Reut, our old friend, was living in Berlin, but her parents sent her love. I wonder sometimes where all that grumpy indignance went on the day before Reut came to visit us, the day of Kathy's call. But it's not much of a mystery, really. It's as simple as this, I suppose. It's easy to be angry at circumstances, easy to get disgruntled at situations. But at the heart of situations and circumstances are people, people with hang-ups and abilities and things they need and things they can give, People who have had a hard day at work or who are tired of doing the dishes or who climb down from greyhound buses full of hope and anxiety and who don't speak the language well. And while it's easy to offer ultimatums to a mute set of circumstances, it's tougher when you can see and shake hands with and buy a milkshake for the people down at the center of the circumstances. It was easy to brush Reut off when she was nothing but an abstract inconvenience, an obstacle to our getting things done that week. But then she materialized, became a real person. And in the face of that, it was simply easier to be friends. Impossible, in fact, to be anything else. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal, and for joining us for all of the stories today, from Sid Lieberman and Joan Stockbridge and Kevin Carr. It's always a pleasure to be with you. This hour was written by Jen Baker. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. Our audio engineer, Carly Robison. I'm Sam Payne. Join us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed, or Google the Appleseed Podcast for something new just about every day on the show. I can't wait to see you next time.
Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Sam Payne with a quick reminder that we've been bringing great stories to the air since 2013 on The Appleseed. We hope to do it for many, many years to come. If you're new to the show, know that we'll be back on the next episode with another helping of tall tales and fairy tales and folk tales and personal tales and historical tales and more told by terrific storytellers from all over the world. And we hope that you enjoyed today's stories. And if you like The Appleseed, you'll enjoy some of the other shows produced by BYU Radio. Talking here about the Lisa show with Lisa Valentine Clark and her co-host Richie T. Talking about Top of Mind with the Gracie award-winning host Julie Rose. Talking about Constant Wonder with Marcus Smith. And of course, we're talking about adventure podcasts like Treasure Island 2020, the swashbuckling time-traveling pirate podcast in 10 exciting parts for you and your family. Just Google Treasure Island 2020 or any of the shows on BYU Radio. I'm Sam Payne. We'll see you next time.